If you're a physician who wants more autonomy in how you practice or fulfillment in your life, you're in the right place. This is the Change Physician Podcast, where our guests reveal how you can learn the mindsets, skills, and strategies to create the life you want without selling out your morals or values. But before we begin, I want to remind you of the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you at thechangephysician.com. This is The Change Physician, episode 227. Hey, folks, welcome back to The Change Physician. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Kukara, with my Balls co-host, Dr. Melissa Cady, and our returning guests, the fantastic Dr. Eric Tate. <laughs> Eric, how are you doing? I am great. Thank you all for having me back on a beautiful Saturday morning. All right. Yeah, we are doing this a little early for me, which is why it's kind of dark for me here. <laughs> yeah, all you all you central, central time people. Yes. Central you know, Texas people. It's, it's yeah. still coffee time for me. Um, But we wanted to get Dr. Tate back on the show here because Eric has probably one of the best financial minds that I've ever had the privilege to actually discuss with. And the economy is everywhere. The news is blaring things. Most of it is um, fluff. If you haven't noticed, it's really hard to get the the facts here. And the first thing I thought of was, let's talk to Eric because Eric has a good head and he can give us both what we're seeing right now as well as some historical context behind it. So Dr. Tate, take it away. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me back. Um, First, I'm going to preface this. I do not have a PhD in economics, but I do study it uh, on the side. And interestingly enough, this is the first time that people have actually uttered the truism that the Federal Reserve has essentially created this inflation. Ten years ago, no one would have ever said that. When 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 Ron Paul was talking about audit the Fed and all these kind of things, people thought he was a kook um, and didn't know what was going on. But people who study monetary history always under have have always understood that if you have an unelected body of people who control how much money is in your system, it almost always ends in ruin, disaster, and excess debt. So what does that actually mean? And so, again, I'm going to try not to be super wonky and at least give examples, but what I want everyone who's listening to do is to get a pen and paper, write some things down so that you can go back and research for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. I'm going to give you a really simplified kind of overall macroeconomic vision. Um, But I highly recommend if you spend 30 days, six weeks, just reading up on these topics, you will be more educated than 99% of people on kind of modern finance and the history of money. And so the first thing we want to talk about is kind of Keynesian economics versus Austrian economics. Now, we're not going to go deep dive into each one, but we, we, for the most part, run on a Keynesian model, which means that our central bank, the Federal Reserve, which is not federal and has no reserves, so understand it is not in branch of the government. It is a private corporation owned by the largest banks in the country. So they are a private corporation. There's nominal oversight by our political system because we get to choose who the Fed chairman is, but the Federal Federal Reserve Board of Governors are all elected by their by the private corporation. So this, these are private people with private stock. They pay roughly a five to seven percent dividend to their shareholders every year. Um, and you should probably research who owns the Federal Reserve, which banks own it. It's out there. You feel free to go out there and look. But their big mandate in the United States is. If demand, meaning if for some reason there's there's a unemployment or there's COVID or something happens, if there's a demand, what we call a shock in the economy, the Federal Reserve comes in and supplies that that kind of demand in terms of making it make what's called easier monetary policy or accommodative monetary policy. 
that just means it's easier to get money in the system. Okay, it's just easier for loans to happen, easier for interest rates are taken down, and that pushes more money into the system. Okay, that's the Keynesian argument of the world is that when demand falls, you step in as the central bank and fill that demand until the economy comes back. I'm not going to talk about good, bad, or indifferent. That's what we are. Go look up Keynesian economics. The other side of the street, for the most part, and there are other systems and schools of economics, is the Austrian school of economics. The Austrian school of economics, in my opinion, is the only school that has historically and consistently proven that what the Keynesian are doing would always end up happening, right? The famous Austrian guys out there are Peter Schiff and people like that, um, or any of the libertarians that you might hear out there that are true libertarians. Not Rand Paul, he's not a true, true libertarian, but if you, if you really go to libertarian philosophy, they talk about sound money. And all that means is that when money is not created by unelected body of private corporation, money comes into existence because human beings need to trade for things. And though I'm, I may be a cobbler and make shoes and you may be a farmer and, and have milk, I, you don't always need shoes and I don't always need milk. We needed an intermediary between the two and that's how money was created, but money has always been backed by something of value. The value is not necessarily in that, okay, we say it's a value, but historically what the Austrians talk about are, is the gold standard, right? Or a gold exchange standard. Again, not gonna go into the, to the goodness, badness or what have you, but I'm gonna give you the rationale behind why it's important and why Bitcoin was created to mimic a type of gold standard. In that gold was used because you can't just create gold out of thin air. Gold requires what we call GDP inputs or inputs. You must hire people. You must buy picks and shovels and axes, and you must pay labor to get it. So what gold ended up being was a proxy for the productive capacity of the economy that you were in at the time. So you can't just create out of thin air. Somebody has to work. Things have to be created to create this thing of value. And then we tied our money to that thing of value. So in that particular point, it was gold, but gold is not specifically talismanic, right? It's got some great properties. It, it's, it, it's useful in technology, but the whole point of it, whether it be gold or silver, is that there must be work involved, which shows you how good your economy is doing to increase the supply of new money in the system. Why is that important? Well, let's take an easy example. You have a, I'm, I'm gonna do very simplified economies. Let's say you have an economy with four houses in it, four single family houses. That's your whole economy, right? And you have $100 in the economy. All things being equal, what is each house worth, right? Four houses, $100, each house is worth $25, right? Because there's $100 in the economy. Well, if I'm an unelected person and I say, no, I'm going to put 200 in the economy now, what is each house, what can it now go for in terms of pricing all things being equal? Well, now it's $50 for each house. But has the value of the house changed at all? Does it house more than three bedrooms and two baths? Does it create any more value besides the price went up because the amount of money in the system went up? That essentially is inflation in a nutshell. You have a larger increase in the amount of money in your system versus the amount of new goods and services that were created at the same time. Okay, that's it. It's no more complicated than that. People want to make it more complicated and demand push and all. It's not. When you have too much money chasing the same amount of assets, prices go up and that's inflationary, right? And that's the difference between price and value. So let's stop there.
and see if there are any questions before we stop there because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk down and make it even more in depth. But I want to make sure everybody has a clear understanding that more money, same assets, inflation. I think you couldn't have it more succinct. I mean, there's, that's the fewest words necessary to, to pretty much state uh, what we need to hear or a reminder of what's going on. Kevin, Kevin you're good on no, that. I, yeah, no, I, I was going to say that's, that's um, I think that's the best, simplest explanation. And I'm looking forward to sort of the behind the scenes thing because I can already, there's already points of discrepancy of where, so I mean, just the things I, that are red flags for me right now. You have a, a private unelected board that are owned by financial services companies, these banking companies. We know the by human nature, we ultimately have some de desire of we're selfish and perceived self-interest is always a big thing. So if you have an institution of financial services that controls an institution that deals with monetary flow, um, that creates some concerns. And then the other part is this, this uh, the idea of production and money, like the, the value of exchange, like currency, or I should say, value exchanges on the simplest level are always between the individual and somebody else. I got my milk. You got your, I forgot what you had, your shoes. Your I'm, shoes. I'm, a, I'm a cobbler. I'm a shoe. <laughs> shoe you got your shoes. <laughs> and so that direct exchange, I got, you know, two gallons of milk for one pair of shoes. Well, that sounds like a really good deal for me. Um, and then we put money in there as sort of a proxy for that that exchange. It is, this I, 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 this will be very interesting because I think there's there's much more to this topic of inflation beyond simple exchange and value as well. So I'm absolutely. So let's go more, perfect more seg perfect segue. So the next thing I want to talk about is money versus currency. Okay. And because there technically is no money in the world today, because there is nothing there, none of the currency units that are being passed around the yen, the renminbi, the dollar, the Euro picket, none of it is backed by anything, but the full faith and credit, of the governments under which are printing those monies. The beauty of the gold exchange standard back in the day was if the United States became a what we call a profligate nation was spending more than they were producing, France would come in and say, you know what, cool, I don't want your dollars anymore, T take your dollars back. I want the gold that backed them, give me that gold, right? Which is exactly what happened. And Nixon said, yeah, you know what, we're done. Um, yeah, we, I'm, we're off the standard, the gold standard. That's literally what happened. Charles de Gaulle was like, hey, I need my, I, France needs its gold back. And Nixon took us off the standard because we would have been drained because the United States was coming off of the Vietnam War, Johnson's Great Society, all of that extra spending, Social Security, all of that was coming to the fore where we were spending more than we were producing. And the rest of the world said, forget that. We, we don't want your dollars. We want the gold. And so we came up the gold standard. We went through the stagflation of the 70s and 80s, which is what it was. That was essentially the second or th uh, second or third time the United States has defaulted on their obligations. People don't think that the U.S. dollar has ever defaulted. We have defaulted before. And then we created what's called the petrodollar system, where we give the Saudis and OPEC uh, dollars, and they they then and they give us oil, and they then take those dollars and put it back in the U.S. Treasuries, and that keeps our interest rates low. We're not going to talk about that. That's as an aside. You people can go do research on that on the on the petrodollar system, and that's actually unraveling right now as we speak um, with what's happening between Saudi and Biden. It's it's a whole thing that's going on right now. But take it off the table for what we're talking about today. So back to money versus currency. Money is backed by something. Currency is backed by whatever central bank is deciding to print that day. So everything that's going around in our society now, our U.S. dollars. 
are currency units. Everything else are currency units, right? So they're not backed by anything of any value, but more importantly, they're not backed by anything that you that requires work to increase to create more currency in the system. It's just a button that's being pressed. Treasury said we hit a debt ceiling. Treasury's like, we need more money. Federal Reserve's like, okay, send us over some treasuries. And people don't realize, which is the next point we want to get to, we're in a debt-based monetary system. What does that mean? Okay, back to our simplified economy. We have $1 in the economy. That's it, $1. Well, the dollar is created when the U.S. Treasury says, I need a dollar, and then they sell a treasury note or bond or however you want to call it and to the Fed. And the Fed then puts the dollar into the system. But please understand that a note and a bond carries interest. Okay, So we have $1 in the economy. It was created with interest, right? Because the U.S. Treasury does not create our money. It used to, but it doesn't now. It creates our money with a debt attached to it. So if we have $1 and it's time to pay back that dollar after we've used it and done something with it, okay, we've paid it back. Where's the money to pay off the interest? There's only $1 in the economy. So where'd the money come from to pay the interest off? Doesn't, right? <laughs> no one's ever asked the question, why does the Fed have to have a minimum 2% inflation rate? They must increase the monetary supply by at least 2% a year. Why? Because you must create a new dollar plus something to pay off the old dollar. So every year our monetary supply has to go up some. Well, what does that mean for you and I, right? People think inflation is benign, but for, for inflation is actually the silent wealth killer. And so a 2% inflation rate after 10 years means 20% of your purchasing power is gone. In 50 years, 100% of your purchasing power is gone. So essentially you're being stolen from as a, as a matter of policy, policy essentially created by an unelected group of individuals that are bankers, that they're saying we are taking 2% from you every year, no matter what, right? Well, I just explained to you why that is, right? Because their debts can't get paid back unless new money comes in the system. So you just create a system that we just keep creating new money so that our old debts can keep getting paid off. That's a debt-based system. Our system does not have to be that way. From 1865 to essentially 1913-ish, the dollar strengthened. Average workers basically got a raise every year because the cost of living came down, not going up. People assume because we've been around since the Fed has been created in 1913 that everybody always talks about, well, the cost of living always goes up. That's actually not the case. And that has not always been the case historically. But because we allowed the central bank to be created in 1913, which was actually the third central bank in the United States, because the founding fathers had a massive fight about whether or not to create a central bank. Jefferson was like, no. And um, who's the other guy? Um, the famous guy. Hamilton, Hamilton was like, yes. Right. Yeah. And then eventually, once we extinguished the civil, the Revolutionary War debts, that bank went away. Then a bank was, was created again. Andrew Jackson hated bankers. He got rid of the second central bank. So our Federal Reserve is actually the third central bank of the United States because the founding fathers, because they studied history, understood that if you create an unelected board to create, to, to create your monetary system, you would ultimately end up with massive amounts of wealth concentration and the average person would be bankrupted over time. All right. And so 300 years ago, the founding fathers knew this. If you go back, I, I do a, a, a presentation that I give 
Um, and I walked through this and I showed Jefferson's quotes about this, right? He literally predicted what's happening right now 300 years ago because human history does not change. The first paper money was in China. They did the same exact thing we're in the middle of right now, 5,000 years ago, right? So if you understand monetary history, you understand that when we get to tipping points of massive amounts of debt, that things and revolutions tend to ultimately happen, right? And so that's ultimately where we are today is that we're in a situation where the just the US Federal Reserve has put an extra $8 trillion into the system. That doesn't count what the Bank of China is doing, what the Bank of Japan is doing, what, 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 what the Central Bank of Europe is doing. Everybody was doing the same thing where they were just putting massive amounts of debt into the system because anytime you create new money, it's always new debt. And that's where we are right now is that that hangover is like, oh, the Fed's balance sheet is $9 trillion. In 2000, it was under $1 trillion. And people are just like, you know what? And then COVID came in, and then we had supply shocks on the consumer side. But please understand that this is a long-term cyclical inflationary process that is happening. And so when you get your stimulus checks, when you get all these kinds of things, that makes it worse. You can't fight inflation by giving out more money because that just causes more inflation and so that's the disconnect you're hearing in the in the in the in the national media but politicians care about votes so they don't care so they're going to try to put money out there because they're going to want to make their constituents feel better but ultimately we have to swallow the bitter pill of draining this debt out of the system and it's going to be painful but if you've got a good job just hunker down and try to buy things that are levered to inflation, right? That's that's kind of my, my, my philosophy has been, I've been talking about this stuff for over 10 years. You can go back and look on message boards and blogs where I talk about the Federal Reserve and where this ultimately is going to head and why we've always bought the kind of assets that we bought. Now is just the time where people are like, oh, this is why you've been doing all this? I'm like, yep, this is why we've been doing all this because we knew this was ultimately going to happen at some point in time, right? So, but that's where we are in a macro standpoint. Too much money, same amount of assets, inflation. And now the Fed has to jack up interest rates to drain the money out of the system to tamp it down. The problem is they're going to have to, they, people say, break something. Well, and I'm not going to go super wonky, but the bond market has been crushed, right? Because bond prices are move inversely to interest rates. So as interest rates go up. If you own a bond, the value of your bond goes down. Now, if you hold that bond to maturity, you'll still get paid out what you were expected. But if you were ever trying to trade that bond, you're going to lose money. And so because people use U.S. Treasuries as collateral, when bond when interest rates go up, the value of the bond that you're holding goes down. You need to put, post more collateral if you're putting up it up against some things. So the thing that has had the most issues has really been the bond market. Though people who are in 401ks and IRAs have felt 20 to 30% loss this year, there's been even more pain in the bond market. And the problem is the bond market is way bigger than the stock market, right? And so this volatility is not going to go away anytime soon in the stock market because until the, until the Federal Reserve decides that they're going to not tighten either quite as fast or going to what they call pivot and say, okay, we're going to do basically a neutral policy. We're going to keep interest rates at this level. You're going to continue to see volatility in the stock market, I think, as my opinion. Hmm. Um. <laughs> everything you're talking about from a, on a consumer side, and it just seems like there's so much, um, so many people that don't understand the long game, you know, and some of these things and how fear is playing into this, any comment about just 
fear and and of course humans uh, <laughs> throughout time have probably demonstrated the same kind of behavior but any comments Absolutely. on that yeah so it all depends on where you sit financially right um and i and i and, and because i because i i'm not a super consumer but i i can I buy assets, right? So I always think of things in monetary standpoints in terms of what do I own and what do I, and do the things that I own produce for me when I'm not out there working, right? So if you've got a good job and everything is okay, you know, all of the wealthy people that I partner with and hang out with, we are sitting on the sidelines salivating and buying everything we can buy. Because anytime there's fear, uncertainty, and doubt, people make bad decisions on good assets. And so you know, I'm not a big stock market person. Even with a 30% drop, the stock market needs to drop another 20 to 30% just to be back at fair value because so much of what the Fed printed of that $8 trillion found its way into the publicly traded markets, they're still overvalued even though we've had this massive drop. Mm -hmm. And so for me, again, it's about buying the correct assets at the correct valuations, right? Do you know what you're paying for in terms of what you're buying? So right now is actually a very good time to buy the correct kind of assets, those that are levered to inflation. You know, I like tech stuff because right now, who's getting laid off in the economy? Tech workers. Who needs tech workers? The startups, because they couldn't afford them before because Google was hiring everybody at $250,000, uh, you know, straight, coming straight out of college. But now these engineers and people are getting laid off where are they going to go next? They're going to fall down to the to the startup companies who need those workers because they're still solving problems in our economy. Whole swaths of our economy, economy still need to be digitized. There are great companies that couldn't hire. Now they're going to be able to hire, right? And so I always like recessions to build businesses and buy assets because that's when everybody's running, everybody's scared, but that's when prices start to to soften, they start to come down, people start getting desperate. And so you can get good assets, you can get good workers. Um, and if you're in a good business that you know you should expand, now is the time to expand when people are being laid off and you can get good talent at great rates. So this is not a time to be fearful at all. I mean, if you're overweighted to the publicly traded markets, yes, you probably need to do something around that, right? Because we're probably in for a choppy road for 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 a little bit while the Fed has to drain all of this liquidity out of the marketplace. Um, but beyond that, and making sure that you're fully diversified and not just public assets, but also private assets, if you've already done that, now it's just a time to go very selectively shopping for good assets and good businesses or to expand your own business at this time because there's going to be talent on the street that gets laid off from other places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's funny how, how a lot of people don't even think, and I don't really necessarily think in the terms of draining liquidity from the federal reserve, like most average person is not going to think that or say that like that seems, I think, yeah. foreign to them, Yep, I would think. But they do know that, that essentially they were able to get their house at a 3% interest rate, right? where in history have you ever had a 3%? I mean, the historical 5,000 year average of interest rates is 7%. So you knew something was going on when you're able to get a sub 2% mortgage or a sub 2 or a sub 4% mortgage, right? Yeah. So everybody has an inkling, right? Everybody, everybody loves it when the party's going, right? <laughs> but when it's time for the hangover, when it's time to actually exercise and drink your water, everybody's like, oh, what's happening? What's really happening, right? We were the beneficiary of bad policy on the way up. You now have to position yourself on the hangover of the undoing of that bad policy. Because when the when when people talk about the Fed balance sheet, all that is is just think of new money, liquidity in the market, more money, less assets, 
prices are going up, interest rates are going down, right? Yeah. Now the Fed, and that created inflation. Now the Fed to do the exact opposite. We must pull the liquidity out, which means interest rates have to go up. So there's going to be some pain in that process. But if you're buying things that are levered to inflation, you don't have to take the financial hit in your personal net worth in that process. Yeah. You just have to know the right stuff to buy at that point in time. Gotcha. Now that's a little bit more complicated because it's not the public market stuff. That's where it gets more complicated. Kevin? So much, so much to discuss there. And so much. I mean, in the, I guess one of the first lenses is kind of take off your humanity lens and just look at this from a very complete objective. And I think when it comes to finances, it is always best to look objectively rather than empathetically. Um, and, and I say that because there's a bunch of points here where someone can start screaming and yelling and and saying how unfair it is and, and on a humanity level it totally is um but when you're looking at things objectively and hopefully the listeners here are looking at things that objectively it's like well what can i do to actually preserve capital preserve my wealth and or to make sure that my family stays safe now we're not saying to go out and rampage the the environment in the world and to to be cruel to people what we're really talking about here is is what do you need to do because this stuff is happening behind behind the scenes. Like, you know, this it, it is always interesting to me. There's the story that is being told, and then there's the story behind the story, which is, you know, whatever they're doing in the halls of quote unquote power here. Like when I check at news, I was like, what are the headlines? And the next thing I do is what is the business headlines <laughs> to see how those things line up. So I, I just wanted to put that out because there's there's um there's there point points here where I'm like just like, oh my God, this is just this is just killing me. Because when you're talking about like the the how the Federal Reserve or the third the third time that we've done this in 1913, shortly after 1913, we had the Gilded Age. So we had this massive acceleration of concentrated wealth in the hands of the few, which then terminated into the stock market plummet of 1929. It seemed relatively quickly. Yep. We come off of we come off and and start um, the gold standard and and what the late 60s, so, and then no, we Brett, had so we, went, so we did Bretton Woods after World War II. And so that's where the rest of the world said, hey, United States, you're the biggest producer on the planet. You back to gold, we will then peg all of our currencies to you. And then we mm -hmm. rebuilt Europe and that went from that standpoint. But then we but we then became profligate with it. We started spending. And that's what which nations do. You overspend your productive capacity. And didn't we end up taking a bunch of gold from the Brits as part of that whole process is uh I, 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 know I, we, just, I know we held their gold for World War II, but because of our special relationship with Britain, we probably gave that back. Okay. Um, but there's some other gold we have not necessarily given back, and but I won't go there. You can do your conspiracy theory tinfoil digging off that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there are cons conspiracy theories are just like crazy, and then there's like there's conspiracy theories is like well, you start looking around whom benefits for what? Because I mean, and then and the other kind of I'm looking at this from like this this macroeconomic line of we're in a very privileged position here. We're we're physicians. We have we have good incomes. We're relatively stable. We're fairly aware of what's happening in in, in the markets. And it, again, you know, I know you don't like the stock market. I have my most of our assets in there, and I, it doesn't stress me out because the last time it dropped, we bought a bunch of it, and so it happens and it goes up again. And and that's sort of like my idea, like the that that's the hedge on the bankers because the bankers aren't going to lose money, and the stock market is where the where the where the bankers are sort of. Well, no, remember, remember, they, they're brokers. They get paid up or down, so they don't yep, care. Yeah. And they take a percentage of your fee, of your money, so it doesn't matter to them if, it, if it's going up or down. I would just say be mindful. So 
for, for those of you who have more than 80% of your net worth in the publicly traded markets, what I would highly recommend is you learn how to do a discounted cash flow analysis so that you can actually understand price to earning ratios and understand how companies are actually valued based upon what they produce. Once you understand that and can understand the difference between price and value, then you can, you're making a much more informed decision about where to place your money um, as opposed to passively placing it. Mm -hmm. Because I can make the argument if we're talking about mean, mean regression, that we've had 20 plus years of over, overproduction in the stock market. So we're going to have to have 20 plus years of underperformance to get back to the mean. And so the question is, are you going to be trying to retire during that 20 years of underperformance, right? Yeah. Or will the Federal Reserve just continue to print money to prop up the stock market? Well, they really can't do that because we hit inflation. So they're telling you inflation is more important than your assets. So we're going to bring your assets down yeah. while we fix this inflation, right? And well, so I just and would be mindful of, of that. Again, I don't, tell, I don't give people advice. I, just, I can only tell people what I do. I can't tell other people what to do. All I can give them is frameworks around how to potentially think about owning assets. And for me, I have to always understand the value of the asset, not the price when I'm buying it. it and that's the key, I think, is for people to hear assets. We're talking assets and what produces and what doesn't. Yep. Um, and, and, I, I, and this kind of just, again, like reminds me of is like, if you look at post-World War II and we have this accelerating middle class, and then there were still fairly, really wealthy people but the concentration of wealth was much less and then we look right. at what's happened since the 80s where this it's the exact opposite has occurred where we're seeing this massive wealth concentrated at the top and then we're seeing pretty much the middle class kind of getting annihilated at the bottom here correct from a humanity standpoint it's like well be, because the pain is going to be felt universally but the people who are going to really hurt are the middle class who don't understand this no, at this point no the upper class never the, the the concentrated wealth in the upper class they never get hurt they don't yeah. they don't get hurt because they yeah. understand because they play both sides right ultimately the 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 argument is always you don't try to beat the fed be the fed how does the fed make money they create money out of thin air they 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 borrow money into existence from nothing and then they make interest off of it Pretty good game, right? Pretty good racket you got there, right? So the question is, how do you, and the beauty of doing that is this, because you know that they're going to create inflation, what you do is you borrow future dollars into today, and you pay it back with devalued dollars over time. It's the reason why the wealthy are so concentrated in real estate, because all we're doing is we're hedging the dollar. We're pulling the dollar into the future to buy an asset today. The asset price goes up. The cash flow goes up. I pay off the debt with dollars that are devalued that I didn't want anyway. I'm left with the asset when the dollars are gone and the debt is gone. But the but the price has gone up, the value has gone up, the cash flow has gone up in that process, right? Again, real estate is not talismanic, but it's the one hedge where you can actually be the Federal Reserve. It's the thing that is a proxy for what they do in the economy. It's the reason why they, you know, they didn't bail out homeowners, they bailed out the banks. Right? All they did was bail out their own constituency group. You want to be in the group that they're going to bail out. <laughs> that's all. And, and, and so I want to dive into that more because some people may not know what you're talking about when we're talking about that's you're talking about really is like leverage and debt. Correct. And so what I want you to do is because there's there's we got like the there's fundamental rules that are like the, the foundational rules, which make step that makes sense at like level one. And level one would be 
you know, don't spend more than you earn, et cetera, et cetera. Debt is, debt is bad, like on a basic foundational level. And if you're thinking really simplistically, that makes sense. But if you're trying to make the next step, what you have to do, do is figure out what is good debt and what is bad debt. So could you kind of talk about that a little bit more, the difference between good debt and bad debt and, and how that works for the creation of, of yeah, it's, it's very It's very simple. Bad debt you pay for, good debt pays you. What do I mean by that? So we don't even call it good debt. We just call it leverage, right? So debt you pay, leverage pays you, right? And so credit cards are bad debt unless you took the money off the credit card and bought something that generates a higher return than you have to pay on the credit card. Now, if you don't know how to do that, you're not supposed, you don't do that, right? And again, <laughs> most of us can't make 24% a year on our money. So we don't borrow against credit cards, right? But we do go to banks and get loans at five and six and 7% because we can easily make 10, 12, 15% a year with almost no sweat, right? And so the question is ultimately, and let's take it back to a more fundamental level. Each of us gives up eight to 12 hours of our life a day in the pursuit of capital. Let's just start there. You add that up over your lifetime, that is going to be 30 to 40% of your the time you spent in your life. You are going to get this representation of your labor, soul, spirit is here, okay? And then you're going to do something with that, right? You're going to buy a house, you'll raise some kids, you'll have a car, you'll save, you might have a second vacation house, you'll have some leisure with it, right? But ultimately, those are all consumptive processes, meaning you spent the time, now it's gone, it is burned, right? So the question you have to ask yourself is, what am I going to do with this representation of my hard-earned, literally, life, soul, spirit? What do I want that to do for me? It's really no more fundamental or basic than that. I've worked. I've sacrificed a portion of my life that I will never get back. How does that then turn around and benefit me? Right? And so there are many ways you can think about this, right? Most of the ways back to level one is put in a 401k, put in an IRA, when you're 59 and a half, if you luckily, if you make it that far, you can then you can get it then because we're gonna give you a little bit of tax break. So you, you can get it then, but you're gonna work your behind off from that from wherever you are now to that particular point in time, right? I just took a different philosophy. Was like, yeah, I need you know, I need this thing that I work for to benefit me today as well as in the future because I maybe I don't want to work quite as hard today, so I need to put in some things that will pay me today, so I don't have to work outside the house quite as hard, and so that it begins to compound and snowball right? That's a different philosophical thought process. And that's more like level three, four or five, right? But the way you do that in the in an accelerated fashion is you're using that good debt to buy assets that pay you. It pays the debt off. You get the cash flow and the assets that's left over, right? It's no more complicated than that. I, I used to tell a story about kind of, kind of the nativity scene, right? The nativity scene was a real estate deal. It was, there were not enough hotel rooms in Bethlehem. So they went to a manger, right? Real estate is everywhere. I don't care what good book you go to. I don't care whatever. Always <laughs> people doing something with real estate, rental, whatever the case may be. It's a basic human need. It is, it is low on Maslow's hierarchy, right? And so before the tech age, most of the Forbes billionaires were real estate people. And once you go below the tech guys, it's all still real estate folks. And so that is the basis of most of our financial system. Capitalism does not exist without the leverage and mortgaging of real property, right? It's not talismanic. 
it is the basis of what we do. We are, we are all living in a house. We are all working in buildings. We all drive on freeways, we all, right? It is a baseline of what we do. So I always just argued, own a bunch of that stuff and let it pay you and you're good, right? You don't have to worry about the Fed. You don't have to worry about all these other, you don't have to worry about inflation because inflation goes up, you just raise your rents, right? It's the easiest way to not have to think about the macroeconomic environment and worry about all this volatility and worry about all this up, down, left, right, or, or center. It's the lazy man's way or woman's way to get wealthy and not have to think about it. <laughs> right? It takes some upfront thinking about it, but long-term it really doesn't. And so that's for, for me has always been the reason why I would always base my wealth there. And then we did other things after that, from that standpoint. So, you know, well, and I, I, I want to read- bring that back is because, because, you know, Dr. Tate has been on our podcast many times and there's a reason why we have, him back many times on this podcast. So if you go back to those earlier episodes and we talked specifically about some of the life choices he met, met, made as a physician where he worked less some people, to earn less of his physician income in order to have the time to kind of plant the seeds in these other these other these asset producing um or I should say well income asset producing assets, assets. income yep. that's the word I was looking for income producing assets go well go back and uh, and and listen to those cuz I think that's Again, awareness is like a key point on this podcast. We it always will come up in every single episode that we have. Is the more that you are aware of how things are and how things flow, the better off you will be. And if you think about currency as a form, like I, I can't remember where I read this. Was, this is a while back, but you you kind of visualize it as a piece of your life. If you are working at X, and this is the dollar amount that you're getting, and then you have to take that and spread it out over 24 hours. Every dollar that you have is basically a is a piece of your life. And so how much is that worth? So people, you know, like, oh, I'm going to get my Starbucks coffee for five bucks. Well, if there's a point in your life where that's a significant chunks of your soul, right? And so I'm going to take, if I'm going to take a little bit less now, and I'm going to instead, instead of think about, okay, I'm just going to spend my life chunks. I can take that, maybe actually eat a little bit less in this moment in time and plant that seed into an asset that's going to grow and provide me more later on. That's that's a way to think that I know I wasn't taught growing up. I mean, no, I, no. I, I, I listen, I, I got lucky in that Robert Kiyosaki wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, my first year of medical school. My college roommate called me and said, read this book. That's the only reason I know this stuff. And that's the reason why I go out and preach this to people as much as possible, especially physicians, is because Really, nobody's taught that, but we, but we absolutely aren't taught that because mm-hmm. we are sequestered away for 12 plus years or longer. We have a very unnatural production process to make us, right? Lawyers, because the world is created by lawyers, them learning the law gives them an, a leg up in life, right? Business people, you usually have to work a couple of years out of college before you can go to business school. We're the only ones that go almost straight through. And even if we don't, we're trying to do some medically related thing to burnish our, our, our resume to get into medical school. And so we're cloistered away in a portion of the economy that while it takes up a lot of gross domestic product, it's not a productive thing. It is a reactive thing to help people when they are sick, but we don't produce stuff for the economy. We try to help people and keep them still producing. So the things that we see are really not applicable to real life in terms of us living outside of the bubble of medicine. And so we don't have an easy pathway mentorship molding to help us think through, okay, cool, you're now a physician. What does that mean? Not just for 
what your parents and your family and your society and your religion or all these other things think of what you should be and what you should do. But what does that mean for you? What kind of, what does that mean for your life, right? I know we're all taught we're supposed to give up everything for our patients. Cool. That works, right? But you die. one of us are committing suicide <laughs> once, once a day, right? Yeah. <laughs> we lose one of us every day to suicide, right? So clearly that model isn't really working as much anymore, right? But no one sits and says, okay, the course in medical school is who are you and why are you here, right? No one has that. No, no medical school has that course. And so there isn't a mentorship pathway through how to make sense of what we may owe society, what society may owe us, who we are outside of the, 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 the healthcare assist arena with the understanding because we have no real autonomy in healthcare, right? So super well accomplished, but we have no personal autonomy in the thing that doesn't run without us, creates massive amounts of cognitive dissonance, right? And so that whole thing and our whole process through this is very stunted, I would like to say. And so that's why I go on and try and, and try to get people, while I love Kiyosaki and all that, I learned more through the personal development arc inside of this to understand who I was and what I wanted, which then informed the economic choices I was going to make to give me the freedom to be the person that I wanted to be. You're not going to be the person you want to be if your economics are all messed up. You've oh. got to figure out how to get your breathing room before you can become and understand who you are in many ways. Yeah, you, you could, you could shout so that from the top of the head, though. I mean, I mean, literally, you know, who I was and what I wanted. This should be the prime question that everybody asks, like, who am I and what do I want? And it sounds kind of it, it may sound kind of facile in a lot of ways, but there's such a depth to that, because if you understand who you are and a lot of times I think this is because this has been profoundly difficult for me. What is it that you actually want, like truly want? If you understand those two things, those are two points of leverage to really guide that path in, in, in a way that is conscious, aware, and intentional rather than being whipped back and forth. And like you were saying, we, we go to medical school and you're just trying to survive and get through this stuff. And then on the other side, you're being, you know, well, now you need to buy the doctor car or the doctor house or there's a certain lifestyle that will kill you. Because the other part, as we're talking here, I'm thinking is we are coming into this economic environment that is full of uncertainty uncertainty can be super scary, but also produces an opportunity. And the advantage that we have in the healthcare-related fields is stability. Now, we may hate that, you know, we complain about the hospitals and all this other stuff here, but we have a, we can generate income relatively easily as compared to most of society. So for physicians, this is, it, as long as you're not overspending and you're not wallowing in, in bad debt, you, you know, frittered away your life, your life changes. There's a, there's a lot of opportunity here, right? It is, I mean, what do you, who, with, with the people that you deal with, how many of them are physicians and, or how many of them are really kind of looking at this as, Hey, things are really uncertain, but man, we have, there's some opportunities here because we know who we are, what we want. And we, we understand how to apply good thinking principles about money. Yeah. I would say probably 80% of my investors are physicians. That's over 300 some odd. And because they come into contact with me. I'm putting these principles out as much as humanly possible. And, you know, anybody who signs up with me, they get an hour with me where I just walk them through, hey, what are you trying to, like the only, everybody will tell you, what do I ask? What are you trying to accomplish financially? Like, like, like this is not a pitch fest for me. Yes, we do deals. It may or may not work for you. doesn't matter. Let's walk through what you're trying to accomplish financially and why. And then I'm going to take that why five levels deep. Yeah. Why do you want to do this? Ask yourself why five times. 
Then you'll get to your actual emotional core. And then you go back from there and then set your life up. But Melissa, you were going to say something earlier from my comment. I want to make sure we get yeah. that in. What, what were you going to say? Um, well, I mean, there's just so much. It, the whole personal development, we're, you know, the change physician. I mean, there's, there's some, there is a huge part of physicians that run the treadmill. They run the treadmill of expectations, the treadmill of service to others and never servicing themselves. And it's this complete um, commitment to whatever this path that's just basically structured for them. And they don't even know how to structure their lives for themselves. And there's this, this huge like awakening I'm finding, not just in myself. And I think COVID has helped kind of burst that open mm -hmm. in some people Definitely. where they're there. A lot of people are going to locums, even nurses, not just, I don't think it's just the money. I don't even think they realize it's the autonomy and the sense of like the time to, to step back and, and realize, whoa, this is like uh, going so fast. I don't even really know who I am. I don't know what I want. I, I need something different. I have friends I know currently that are like, I, I just, I get excited when I think about something else, the freedom to, to be myself and be creative and, and, you know, work from within instead of being like pounded from the outside. So I, I just wanted to say that I'm definitely doing a trailer on that. I mean, there's, there, <laughs> there is so much we need to hear from that. And I, I love that. And, um, I, I just, I get very, um, empowered. Um, I think a lot of physicians just need to hear someone that's able to put that into words. So, so. let me give you all a secret, right? I, I give little nuggets of secrets out every every couple of years about kind of the background of stuff, right? The, the, the big secret I gave people out last year was we just invest on the first two levels of Maslow's hierarchy. It's no more complicated than that, right? We don't, I don't advertise that, but if you look at it, what we do, that's essentially where we sit, right? Just stay low on Maslow's. That's, that's, the, that's my kind of rule in life. The second thing is, I literally just created Vernonville just for that reason for doctors. I was like, if I could, if I could get physicians to work one quarter to one third less, but not take a financial hit, everybody's happier. Everybody's happier. Most people won't want to leave. They just, hey, I can cut down a quarter of my time, a third of my time. I would stay in doing this and I'm not taking a financial hit. Cool. So I have investors, I tell them all the time, what do you make a day? right? All we're trying to do is replace one day a week from a passive income standpoint. Your life will be infinitely better. Everybody's always trying to worry about replacing their full income. Nah, that's, that's monumental task. But replacing a quarter of your income, a third of your income, that can be done in three to five years if you're diligent about it, right? And I don't know if you all have experienced it, but once I got to that point, I was like, oh, like I don't want to leave medicine. I, I still like, like, I still practice because I like being a doctor, right? I could have long been gone, right? Long gone, right? But most of us who do this, we do it because we love it, but we feel trapped by it. And so I tell people all the time quietly, like, listen, if I gave you, if, if I could reduce your clinical hours by one quarter to one third, and you did not take a financial hit in that process, how would you feel? There's very few people like, I need to leave medicine completely. Most just need that little space to breathe, do the creative thing that they gave up, the hobby that they gave up before they got into medicine, that thing that made them feel whole that they had to then sacrifice to get into this. And now there might be a mom or a dad and they've got all these other life things that have come on to them. If you can give them that quarter sliver time back that's just theirs, oh, everybody's life would be so much better. Morale would be better. Champ scores would be better. 
patient satisfaction scores are better. Like all of that gets better, right? That's all we're trying to do. That's literally all we're trying to do here, right? It's not any more complicated than that. And I just like, well, why don't I just build a business around doing this? Because it's a thing I wanted. I know other docs want it. So why don't we just build a business that can help people do that? That's literally the secret of, that's, the, that's all this is. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my question to you is, is for people that feel clue, like they have the intelligence level to eventually understand this stuff, mm-hmm. but where would you say for people other than Vernonville um, or in addition to <laughs> Vernonville? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll take me out of it. I'll just, I, I, you know, I just, we can give like starting points, right? Yeah. Like how do they educate themselves? The easiest. This? So, so I'll give you the, 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 the non-helpful to me answer. And then, 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 then just read Kiyosaki's stuff. I don't care what you feel about him philosophically. I don't care what you feel about him politically. That man is responsible for more millionaires than probably anybody else on this planet just in terms of the things that he's taught. But the beauty of it is he takes you behind the scenes of what's actually, so what Kevin, you were talking about, the story behind the story, he gives you the story behind the story. He gives you the understanding of how money actually works in our current society and our current monetary system, right? If our system changes, then the philosophies will change, but this system isn't changing because it it makes the people who designed it very wealthy, they're not gonna give it up, right? And so the easiest is just read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the cash flow quadrant, which is the most important one because it really teaches you accounting, right? So you can really understand what your personal balance sheet actually looks like, right? Rich Dad's Guide to Investments, which shows you how you do private real private deals, right? Whether it's buying a business, whatever the case may be, and just in terms of how you can gear it, how you can lever it, all those kinds of things. Um, and then tax-free wealth, same issue. How do you set yourself up in such a way that you can you can minimize your taxes legally, right? That The whole series will give you a very good overall general understanding of how money works and how the how the wealthy pay no taxes in our society, right? Now, they, they don't pay personal income tax. They pay a ton of property taxes. They pay a ton of payroll taxes. They pay a ton of, like, that, 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 that joke that, oh, Bezos doesn't pay any taxes. Yeah, Amazon pays a crap ton of payroll taxes, property taxes. Like, they pay a lot of taxes, right? He may not personally pay taxes, but the business pays a ton of taxes and that money would have gone to him had he not the business not paid taxes so i i kind of get a little funky around people not understanding the tax code when they talk about well there are loopholes and this that and the other yes anybody can take advantage of them you just have to set yourself up in a certain kind of way right the the, the argument is always capitalism only works for those who participate if you are only a consumer in capitalism you are getting the short end of the stick you must produce something now, that may be you just investing in an early stage company. That may be you b- just being in the stock market. That may be whatever the case may be, but you have to participate. Or the system, if you're only a consumer, the system will run you over. So remember I was talking about, what does your portfolio produce for others? That is the basis of capitalism. What does my money do for other people? And how do I get a percentage back that comes back to me in that process? That is capitalism. People don't, people want to call it a bunch of other things. That's ultimately what it is. It's why McDonald's used to put up how many they served over time, right? Because that is a proxy of how much money they're making is service to other people, right? But again, let's not get political at this point uh, from that standpoint. So the early thing to do is rich dad stuff. Now I created a whole essentially nonprofit website called the physiciansroad.com. There's tons of reading on there. I have my own podcast stuff. I don't do it very often, but I, I have a bunch of stuff that what I created was a kind of a life balance wheel for physicians on that website for free. It just lives there. I pay for it. It just lives there, right? There's no, it's not 
linked to our investment firm in any way. It's not any of those kinds of things, right? It's just free educational content on finances, on real estate investing, on early stage investing, in marriage, in, in negotiations, right? All of that kind of stuff. I just put it up there for free as a give back to the profession because I didn't have a site like that when I was coming up that could I could just go through it and like, oh, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And then you can do further reading over time for the things in the areas that you want, right? And so those are, I literally designed a site to basically be a mentorship platform because I don't want to do coaching <laughs> and I don't want to do that kind of stuff. So I said, here, what I have in my brain, it can live here. You can go get it without me. And then you can reach out to me if you want something, right? And so that's kind of the two things. If I were building my own mentorship that I would have wanted, I built that website for that. I'm just going to add pile on there too. And I, I get confused because I, I, I know there's Vernonville and I know those are urban capital network. And so I get confused on that stuff and I get emails from both, but I'm, I'm just going to, this is a, this is a pitch. I'm going to put out there that Eric did not, we didn't do him on this for this. We obviously know there's no affiliate relationships here, but if no. you sign up for his email list and you haven't written for a while, cause I've been watching for it. Um, you get some of the most insightful financial. No, we got one, no. Someone out last week. Something went out last week. But that was a short one. That wasn't yeah, very long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You well, get some really long ones, like like last year, that yeah. were like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna just save this and bookmark this thing." Because yeah. <laughs> we're doing a bunch of deals right now. That's why, right? When and when I get busy on deals, the other stuff has to fall by the wayside because we're we're really busy on deals right now. So, and and I want to sign up for the email simply for this because no matter whether you invest in the deals or not, your presentations are fantastic. Thank They're you. so educational, and and you may like I don't know what's going on, but you break things down. Um, the the ones I've really enjoyed are a lot of your startups when you were coming in because you were investing in these early stage startups and it was just really cool and to see yep. and to and to kind of hear the dynamics in the background and if you're just watching them passively you you start seeing some insights well why are they doing this deal what's the what's the common theme between this deal and this deal and you, and you start seeing these trends and so I highly recommend that and you know Eric didn't know I was going to say that but no I appreciate that and I purposely yeah. do that I tell people what even if you're not going to invest with us I don't care I do care but I, you know ultimately <laughs> in the end you're going to do what's best for you right but I purposely make the investor presentations educational because we are not taught this stuff right mm -hmm. we are not taught any of these things whether Half the stuff I was even taught in business school, right? So all I'm trying to do is take the stuff that I learned and pass it back down to other folks. So more of us can participate in what has historically been a very closed loop system that most people could not get access to. Yeah, I love it. I, I know we could go on forever about all of this. Stuff, Kevin. <laughs> you, did you have any uh, specific questions, Kevin, um, that you want to target? Because I, I have a feeling we probably are going to ask him to come on again one day. Well, of course, <laughs> of course, I think every time we say it, it's like, oh, we got to have Eric back. I just like talking to you, Eric. I mean, you, I, I, I just it. really, I really like enjoy it. I wish you lived closer to me because I mean, I'd love to just, you know, <laughs> sit down and have a drink somewhere. Um, so you have to come up to like, I mean, I mean, closest city to us is Portland. So maybe we should have to do something in Portland or, or yeah, I have to, so I guess you I all need, Texas. So you all need to do a conference and I can come speak at the conference. There, there you go. go. That's a great idea. I, like I was just one. thinking about that yesterday, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But um, I, but I, so I wanted to do a kind of quick summarize here and then Eric kind of, kind of put in your summarization of what I'm saying. Because we started this off on kind of what, what the current economic state is, sort of the historical background for that. And then discussed um, it kind of a high level detail of of opportunities that there are, 
I, I do want to, the, the, you know, the, the listenership here, predominantly physicians, physician allies, et cetera, it, it, while we kind of gear things toward physicians, this is, is applicable to you as well in many different ways. Um, for physicians, again, this is super exciting time for you, as long as you're making sure that you know, understand the difference between leverage and, and bad debt, minimize your bad debt. I can't say that often enough. And if you just can kind of give a real quick summary, Eric, on where you think, if you were a physician now, and you were just sort of entering with the knowledge that you have, um, what are like the next two, two or three things that you would do over the next year? Um, learn how to read an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement. You can do that at Khan Academy online. Um, understand the difference between uh, price and value. You can do your research on figuring that out, but easy way Buffett looks at it is price is what you pay, value is what you get. Okay, that's an easy way to think about it from that standpoint. And then um, really think about what you want your life to look like in 10 years from now in terms of whether or not you have, if you're a new starting out physician, do you have a spouse or not already? How many kids do you want to have? Where do you want to live? And then do you want your labor to be the thing that has to pay for that? Or do you want to do some things financially where you're working at a steady pace, but you're generating income from money you've already made to help pay for your lifestyle, right? Um, and so really think about kind of what you want your life to look like who are you as a whole person? And then you work yourself backwards because people have a good tendency to plan out a year, but don't think about 10 years from now, where do I want to be actually living? What size house does that look like? What is that going to cost? All of those kinds of things. But am I going to give up my life to achieve those material things? Or can I have the material things that I want? Because I've done some financial things on the front end to make that happen without me having to give up more of my life and spirit and time. Can you remind us of the uh, website for learning how to read income statement and all of that? Oh, Khan Academy. Academy. K yeah, K-H-A-N Academy. You just pull it up on YouTube. It's pretty, it's pretty easy. And then the next step would be a discounted cash flow analysis. Once you understand how to read a balance sheet, then you can do a discounted cash flow analysis, which then allows you to value publicly traded assets um, from that standpoint. Because most of the people listening here are going to be in 401ks, IRA stocks, those kind of things. But the problem is most people are buying them. They have no idea what they're actually paying for them in terms of the value, right? Like, are you overpaying for it or are you underpaying for it, right? Would you pay a million extra dollars for a house that's worth 500000 No, you wouldn't. But people are doing that every day in the stock market when their money just kind of passively goes into a 401k. Over the past 10 years, you've been basically overpaying from a value standpoint with the hope that it just keeps going up. And the fuel that was making it go up the Federal Reserve printing and adding that money into the, into the economy, they're telling you we are taking it out because we are raising interest rates and that takes that money and liquidity out of the economy. So the question you have to ask yourself is what's the fuel to make the prices continue to go up when that is going to be drained out? Got it. All right, Kevin, you want me to take, take us it out? out? Take us out. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Um, you are always... Uh, amazing to talk to about this and and get our minds back on track and 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 one of the biggest things is obviously um some of the beliefs out there may not be really the the truth of what's going on and so um thank you for uh you know just explaining some of that and we look forward to getting you back on and and talking about some more topics i'm sure so i appreciate um, it thank you yeah. Well, for those of you listening out there, I'm Melissa Katie, the Challenge Doctor with my co-host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode and make sure to join us at thechangephysician.com and be part of our community. Take care. Stay well, folks. 
Thank you for joining us today on the Change Physician Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com.